November 28, 1960, was a chilly fall night in Turin, Italy. Family and friends gathered for wine, bucatini, and music. But for Achille and Jean-Baptiste Utica Cordelia, socializing was of little interest. Instead, the 27- and 21-year-old brothers were holed up in an old World War II bunker, tinkering with salvaged radio equipment. They were listening to the skies. The space race between the United States and Russia was heating up, and the brothers wanted a piece of the action. After listening in on Sputnik's takeoff a few years earlier, they'd made a hobby out of hacking into Soviet transmissions. It didn't matter that there wasn't a planned satellite launch that evening. The brothers had intercepted transmissions before, even when nothing was officially in the skies. So they tuned their radio to one of the Soviet frequencies, hoping to catch some Russian communications. At first, it was mostly silence, until they heard a faint hiss. The brothers turned up the volume with anticipation. There was a clear break in the transmission, like a signal. And then, a beep came in. The sound continued for a few minutes. It seemed to be coming from a rocket, and it had a pattern, clearly Morse code. It was loud at first, but then continued to fade, as if the craft were floating deeper into space. With only so much time to decode the signal before it disappeared, one of the brothers pulled out a pen and wrote down the beeps and intervals. They spelled out an eerie message. S-O-S. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Monday and Wednesday, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. You can find episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This is our one-part episode on the lost cosmonauts, the Soviet astronauts who allegedly vanished in space, and the cover-up that may have ensued. First, we'll explore the turbulent origins of the Russian space program— Then, we'll discuss a man named Vladimir Ilushin, who might have been the real first man in space. Finally, we'll talk about the other cosmonauts who might have come even earlier and never returned to Earth. Because even though they never came back, we might have proof of their existence. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. We got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. 
Make every moment more with FanDuel. It goes down in the dim. It go down. It go down in the dim. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable. Bonus vest that expires seven days after receipt. See full terms at fanduel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. For most of history, rocketry and the very idea of space travel was relegated to myth and science fiction. But this changed at the dawn of the 20th century, thanks to a Russian scientist named Konstantin Solkovsky. After reading novels about space travel, he proposed theories on how rockets that were launched into orbit could actually work. He envisioned ships fueled by liquid hydrogen and oxygen, not far off from what's used today. Solkovsky published his ideas until the 1920s, but they weren't much more than theories. Ultimately, he laid the foundation for how a rocket might be designed. This allowed another scientist named Sergei Pavlovich Korolov to actually put these theories to the test. Korolov was just 24 years old when he privately founded the Group of Investigation of Reaction Motion, or GERD, in 1931. Their mission was to study and design rocket engines. Korolov wanted to focus on this technology since he believed it would make military craft fly higher and faster, something highly valued by Soviet Union leader Joseph Stalin. Stalin's goal was to transform Russia from a poor agrarian society to an industrial superpower, and while this might sound legitimate, his methods of doing so were extreme. He seized farmland, expanded policing power, and ruled with a totalitarian government. He was a dictator in every sense of the word. At the time, Stalin had cast a spell over many Russian citizens, Korolov included. The engineers seemed to idolize Stalin and wanted to help the Soviets build a better defense system. So Korolov led GERD to build the nation's first rocket, one that ran on liquid fuel, just like Solkovsky's models. All he had to do was prove it worked. He had to launch it. Early tests showcased a range of problems, like rogue flames, burnt nozzles, and leaking safety valves. Seeing these warning signs, Korolov kept pushing the initial launch date, he wanted everything to run smoothly and for the rocket to hit its maximum possible altitude. 
If they failed, he'd embarrass himself and his group. Yet one day, a fellow scientist convinced Korolov otherwise. His colleague insisted he just had to go through with it because the launch might mark an advancement to Russian rocketry that was more important than any altitude record. Korolov knew he was right. On August 17, 1933, Korolov and his team launched the GERD-09, a small 40-pound rocket. They watched the unmanned craft fly for 18 seconds as it reached the height of the Empire State Building. Only, it hit a tree on the way back down. The tree was fine. The rocket fell apart. Even with the crash, the rocket was still a major success. Not only had it reached an incredible altitude, the launch also validated Solkovsky's predictions about using liquid oxygen as fuel. If the Soviets kept developing it further, they could have the world's fastest airplanes or be able to send missiles shooting overseas. Or maybe go to space. Ultimately, Korolov's launch showed the potential of his team and the GERD program. It proved they were on the road to developing more advanced military weapons, which meant Stalin wanted in immediately. In 1933, Stalin's military seized Korolov's group, giving the government ownership of all their inventions. They renamed it the Jet Propulsion Research Institute, or RNII. Korolov was made head of aerospace structures, and his partner, Valentin Glushko, was in charge of propulsion systems. Essentially, Korolov designed the crafts, and Glushko made them fly. Over the next few years, likely with the help of more government funding, the two continued to develop more advanced missiles, including the RP-318, the first Russian manned rocket plane. The craft was so advanced, it could nearly fly to space. However, with more resources came more pressure and more scrutiny. Stalin had grown increasingly paranoid when it came to the upper ranks of the Kremlin. For reasons often debated by historians, Stalin believed that members of his own party were out to overthrow him or threaten the communist structure he helped put in place. So, in 1936, Stalin began a series of large-scale purges, arresting and often executing political and scientific leaders he believed to be enemies. By March 1938, that list included Glushko, Korolov's partner. It's unclear why exactly Glushko was considered a threat, but it seems he was given a way to reduce his sentence. He just had to trade intelligence on someone else, preferably someone important. Glushko chose to rat out his partner. He apparently told the NKVD, Stalin's secret police, that Korolov had committed treason and sabotage against his government. While the specifics of his accusation remain unknown, they were powerful enough that by June 1938, Korolov was arrested. The engineer was taken from his home, sent to the worst of Stalin's gulags, and sentenced to 10 years of forced labor. 
Surprisingly, the gulags and jails contain special research and development labs called sharashkas. These were teams of prisoners handpicked by government officials to advance Stalin's technological aims. Unsurprisingly, they worked for free. As fate would have it, the head of one of the aviation teams recognized Korolov and vouched for his aptitude. He was transferred to a more humane jail in Moscow and spent the next few years there designing planes. By the end of World War II, the Shiroshkas had produced some formidable technology, like better aircraft and weapons. But the war made it apparent that other countries were much further ahead. At this point, the U.S. had fired advanced missiles and detonated an atomic bomb. Germany was also neck and neck after developing a new long-range ballistic missile called the V-2. The V-2 launched quickly and carried explosives at such high altitudes that it reached the edges of outer space. This allowed German bombs to go virtually undetected. The technology wasn't unlike Korolov's early designs. They were just more developed, meaning the Soviets might have been further ahead had they not jailed some of their leading scientific minds. To make things more challenging, the Americans had relocated a handful of German scientists to the U.S. under Operation Paperclip. It wouldn't be long before the U.S. had the world's most advanced rockets. If war were to strike again, the Soviets needed the same, if not better, technology. Their best bet was to take Russia's best R&D out of the Gulag system, and that included Korolov. After the government released Korolov from prison, he was made the project lead at a new center called the NII-88. They were tasked with designing the Soviets' first long-range missile. This would be the first intercontinental ballistic missile, capable of going 40 times higher than the Germans' missile, not just near space, but through it. This period marked a major shift in Korolov's vision for rocket technology. It wasn't just about making superior airplanes now. Instead, Korolov envisioned space satellites and ships that could transport men to the moon. For the next few years, Korolov worked tirelessly. He was demanding of himself and his team. Everybody from lead designers to assembly workers was held responsible for their performance. Their diligence paid off. On October 4, 1957, Korolov launched a modified version of the world's first intercontinental ballistic missile into space, and he sent a small beach ball-sized satellite with it called Sputnik. The satellite successfully disengaged and went into orbit. It was the first to do so in history and became a raging success for the Russians. And a raging embarrassment for America. President Eisenhower had been waging an ideological war against the Soviets. He wanted to prove that capitalism and democracy were superior to their communist model. Sputnik's launch proved that, so far, he was losing. This moment is often considered the start of the space race between the U.S. and Russia. And yet, it was just a glimmer of the contention to come. Soon after, the Soviets created a bigger, loftier goal for themselves, sending a man into space. 
In May 1959, the Soviet government authorized a new kind of satellite, which they called, quote, a Sputnik for human flight. Korolev began working almost immediately, naming the project Vostok. Feeling the increased pressure, Korolev's need for control mounted. He took responsibility for all aspects of design and production, even if they weren't his ideas. But no one dared push back against his fierce temper. He was feared by many of his subordinates and fellow designers. And ultimately, he got things done. Fast. In less than two years, Korolev completed Vostok. With the craft perfected, there was only one element left out of his control. The cosmonauts. When Korolev designed the craft, the potential for human error was top of mind. Knowing that, he made it as automated as possible. Many decisions would be made from the base where he was stationed. He even limited the number of manual controls aboard the ship. This meant if something were to go dangerously wrong with the flight, the cosmonauts had little control over it. They'd be left hanging in outer space, praying for their lives. Coming up, the Soviets stage a cosmic cover-up. Hi, Parcasters. It's Greg and Vanessa from the series Serial Killers. For the past five years, we've explored hundreds of history's most notorious murderers, giving listeners an intimate look at their sordid origins and heinous crimes. If you haven't had a chance to join us before, there's no better time to dive in than right now for our Serial Killers 5th Anniversary Special. It's a four-part examination into the mythology surrounding four fearsome killers. Edmund Kemper, John Wayne Gacy, Ted Bundy, Jeffrey Dahmer. Our 5th Anniversary Series uncovers the men behind the mayhem, analyzing what turned them into killers and how their lethal behavior made their stories larger than life. If you've listened to the show before, we hope you enjoy. And if you haven't, this is the perfect series for any avid ParCast fan. Follow Serial Killers to hear our four-part fifth anniversary special. Listen now, free and only on Spotify. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Now, back to the story. By the start of the 1960s, the Soviets and Americans were in a heated competition, each working to send a man into space. The Russian program had its fair share of power struggles, secrecy, and ego, which filtered down into the various projects its teams worked on. And this would cause another group designing a new intercontinental missile, the R-16, to go into crisis mode. The missile was originally scheduled for launch in July of 1961, but the team's lead designer wanted it to coincide with the anniversary of the Soviet Revolution. As a result, he moved the launch up to November 1960. Doing so, however, forced the engineers to rush safety checks, cut corners, and defy regulations. 
It was a frenzied environment, even after the rocket got moved to its launch pad. And on October 24th, the chaos and miscommunication caused a section of the rocket to explode. Fire spewed in all directions, covering more than a hundred nearby engineers and technicians in flames. Most of them perished. In the wake of the tragedy, the Soviet government did respond, but only with concern for its reputation. If word got out, doubt about the soundness of the Russian space program might spread, both at home and abroad. With its international credibility on the line, the Soviet Union had to keep things like this a secret. So the government asked the victims' families to keep quiet. And, perhaps fearing prison time, they did. Meanwhile, by the start of 1961, Korolov's Vostok manned spacecraft was nearly finished, which meant it needed a crew. It's not totally clear how the selection process for cosmonauts worked, but it seems like the Soviets picked a group of six candidates to begin training for space. Many were former pilots, the military's best. They were all competing for one single spot aboard the mission. Training involves spending 15 days in a test chamber to simulate what life would be like on board the ship. Mostly, it was a psychological test to ensure they could endure the elements and the isolation. But in March, disaster struck. Ten days into cosmonaut Valentin Bondarenko's training, an electric stove in his capsule caught fire, covering him in burns. Though Bondarenko was taken to the hospital, he died the next day. Like the previous incident, news of his death wasn't publicized. Even more suspiciously, Bondarenko was airbrushed out from photos of the training group. It was like he was never part of the tests at all. We'll never know if Bondarenko would have been the first man in space had he not been killed, since the candidate selection process remains unclear. But we do know that in the weeks after Bondarenko's death, Soviets tapped 27-year-old Yuri Gagarin for the job. On April 12, 1961, Gagarin was scheduled to take off in the Vostok. This was a major day for the space program. If successful, the Russians would be respected worldwide. Yet that morning, before Gagarin had even left, a British communist newspaper called The Daily Worker released an article about the Russian space program. The headline read, The First Man in Space and it wasn't referring to Gagarin at all. Which brings us to conspiracy theory number one. The first person in space wasn't Yuri Gagarin, but a man named Vladimir Ilyushin. Suspiciously, the article claimed that on Friday, April 7th, five days before Gagarin's mission, the Soviet Union had sent someone else into the stratosphere, and that cosmonaut was in the hospital, suffering, quote, after-effects of the flight. While the article didn't include a name, it did have some very specific details about the cosmonaut, including the fact that he was the son of a Soviet aircraft designer. The USSR completely denied those reports. All their focus was aimed at Gagarin's launch later that day. 
Once his rocket successfully reached space, Gagarin spent 108 minutes in orbit. The craft then returned to the atmosphere and ejected Gagarin, who parachuted back to Earth. Gagarin was an instant hero, a shining beacon for what communism could do. And that story the Soviets told the Daily Worker was the one they needed to publish. Which is exactly what the Daily Worker did. On April 13th, the British paper's headline read, A Communist in Space, Moscow Preparing Hero's Welcome for Yuri Gagarin. However, the paper didn't retract the story from the previous day. So to a casual reader, it seemed they'd just announced an incorrect date. But more inconsistencies would mount, this time from a French journalist. A few days later, he clarified the paper's earlier claims by insisting that the first man in space was not Yuri Gagarin. It was someone else by the name of Vladimir Ilyushin. According to the 1999 documentary, The Cosmonaut Cover-Up, Vladimir Ilyushin was the son of an aircraft designer, just like the first article said. He was also considered one of the Soviet military's most esteemed and decorated pilots. In the late 1950s, as many of his comrades joined the cosmonaut program, Ilyushin was uninspired. Korolov had designed the spacecraft to operate remotely, and Ilyushin was a pilot, a good one. He saw no point in jumping in an aircraft he couldn't actually fly, so he initially refused to join the Corps. But something changed his mind. Whether that was seeing the accolades he could receive from the government, like military medals, or just wanting to take his reputation to the next level, Ilyushin may have begun to eye a different title, one that would give him even more glory. The first man in space. Allegedly, Ilyushin joined the cosmonaut's training program soon after and quickly impressed his cohorts. His intelligence and attitude, combined with his experience at high altitude, made him an ideal candidate for space. And supposedly, on the morning of April 7, 1961, just a few days before Gagarin's flight, Ilyushin climbed into a craft and was launched into the stratosphere. Ilyushin circled the globe two times and planned for a third. But towards the end of lap three, something went wrong with the craft's electrical system. Ilyushin lost all contact with the ground. He couldn't manually override the controls, nor could he eject himself from his rocket. The capsule allegedly crash-landed in Russia, with Ilyushin still inside. He survived but sustained major injuries and was hospitalized. The Soviets never publicly announced the mission, neither before or after it supposedly happened. It was better to wait until they knew the results, probably because a mission gone wrong wasn't the way they intended to showcase communist success. Which may be why, after the Ilyushin crash, the Soviets simply tried to bury the evidence and try another launch with a different cosmonaut instead. Five days later, Yuri Gagarin's successful flight was the talk of the world. But thanks to the French reporter, more and more international sources were spreading Ilyushin's story. Even the U.S. News and World Report published a piece about it a month later. 
Naturally, the Soviets weren't thrilled. They wanted the news to be about Gagarin's success, not Ilyushin's failure. So the USSR maintained a united front. Deny, deny, deny. The problem was, though, their alibi about Aleutian didn't add up. First, the Soviet media said Aleutian was not a part of their cosmonaut corps. But less than a month later, they changed their tune, saying Ilyushin was a cosmonaut. However, they insisted he couldn't have been on the April spaceflight because he'd been injured in a car accident in March. Then they went back to their original story. The Russians insisted Ilyushin couldn't have been a cosmonaut at all due to a car accident that happened in 1959 which left him in a coma one that lasted until March 1961. Not only was this timeline suspicious, but there was also physical evidence that clearly debunked this claim. A photograph of Ilyushin from December 1960 shows him receiving a medal from a government official, not comatose at all. Even more strange to the Western media, Ilyushin himself never made a public appearance in the year after his supposed spaceflight, Rumors started to fly that he hadn't landed in Russia at all. He'd actually landed in mainland China and was being held by Chinese communist officials for questioning. Soviet officials tried to brush off these rumors by saying that after his accident, he'd been sent to a rehabilitation hospital in China. But they cited two different cities, which only added to the confusion. For those who thought he might have landed in China... They insisted Ilyushin was returned to the USSR a year later under the terms of a Chinese-Soviet trade. Wherever Ilyushin ended up, all of these possibilities are difficult to prove. He remained mum on the subject and has since passed away. Ultimately, Ilyushin never admitted that he'd gone to space before Gagarin. But it's possible he was coerced into silence. If the Soviet government threatened Ilyushin with prison time, or worse, if he spilled the beans, he had good reason to stay quiet. Plus, things get even more suspicious when we consider what happened to Yuri Gagarin. After touching back down to Earth, Gagarin reached full-blown stardom. But he struggled with his celebrity. He didn't like the attention, And to make matters worse, the Soviets wouldn't let him fly anymore. He was too valuable a figurehead for the country to lose. This has led some to believe Gagarin threatened to retract his title. If he knew about Ilyushin and could set the record straight, he might get his old life back. And if the Soviets knew he was about to talk, they'd want to stop it. This might have been what happened in 1968 when Gagarin was suddenly asked to get back into a plane and do a few test missions in a fighter jet. On the morning of March 27, 1968, Gagarin went to an airfield north of Moscow and suited up. It was raining and windy, not ideal conditions, but Gagarin and his co-pilot took off anyway. They did a few barrel rolls and loops, then radioed in to say they were heading back. But then, the line went dead. 
Gagarin's plane crashed a few minutes later and went up in flames. Both Gagarin and his co-pilot were killed, but the cause of the crash wasn't clear. Officially, the Russians claimed that Gagarin swerved to avoid hitting something. Then the plane dove to the ground. But even Russian aviation experts said this was impossible. A swerve wouldn't have caused a crash that bad, especially under the direction of a skilled pilot. Something else was at play, something suspicious. Plus, there was the Communist Party's strange reaction. Instead of telling the public as much as they could about their hero's death, they closed the investigation. Gagarin's death was deemed top secret. People theorized why the government wanted to keep it hidden so badly, like maybe Gagarin had been drinking before the flight, or that his aircraft had been tampered with by the Brezhnev regime, who may have seen Gagarin as an enemy, or that Gagarin was murdered by the KGB, maybe because he threatened to expose the truth about Vladimir Ilyushin. Even today, there's no great rationale for Gagarin's death. Explanations have ranged from faulty air vents to the possibility that a larger Soviet aircraft violated Gagarin's airspace. The KGB blamed the air traffic controllers and said the team on the ground may have given Gagarin bad information. As for the truth about Ilyushin, a news reporter in the Cosmonaut cover-up documentary is purported to have viewed old Kremlin documents, and they seemingly proved Ilyushin was the first man in space. The journalist said he saw pre-launch paperwork and documents on the crash itself. But those files have never been released to the public. While I wouldn't be surprised if this account were true, there's just no concrete evidence of Ilyushin's flight. Ilyushin himself could have come forward to correct his legacy, which makes it a hard sell to say he was the first man in space. So, on the scale of 1 to 10, with 10 being the absolute truth, I give this conspiracy theory a 3. I'm not so sure. Given the Soviets' history of persecution, Ilyushin was probably very nervous to speak out. And not only did he seem like the better fit for the first man in space, we pointed out that multiple publishers around the world leaked the story, not just one. Plus, the Soviets seemed very frazzled with their ever-changing explanations on what really happened to him. Because of this, I give this theory a four. I agree that the Soviets could have been hiding something, because even before Ilyushin, there were rumors about other cosmonauts. Ones who'd gone up, but never came down. Coming up, a Soviet cosmonaut's cry for help. Looking to invest? Start your journey by exploring exchange-traded funds with GlobalX ETFs. Exchange-traded funds, or ETFs for short, create baskets of stocks, bonds, and other assets that you can buy in a single trade. GlobalX specializes in ETFs that track emerging trends, like the rise of artificial intelligence, as well as strategies aimed to generate income potential. Visit GlobalXETFs.com to discover how you can get started. 
This episode is brought to you by J.Crew. This spring, J.Crew is telling a linen love story. From perfectly rumpled beach cover-ups and effortlessly sexy suiting to button-up shirts from the world-famous Baird McNutt Mill in Ireland, the new J.Crew collection is made to be shared, lived in, and loved for decades and generations to come. Shop linen like you've never seen it. And more new arrivals for spring 2024 at J.Crew.com. Now back to the story. Officially, the Soviets declared Yuri Gagarin the first man in space per his April 12, 1961 flight. But international papers said it was actually Vladimir Ilyushin on April 7th. And yet, there's a chance both claims were wrong. There may have been man flights happening before either man, as early as 11 months before. Which brings us to conspiracy theory number two. Other Russian cosmonauts were launched into space, but got stuck in orbit and never returned. In 1960, American author Robert Heinlein published a travel essay describing a strange encounter he'd had on Russian soil. The story went like this. On May 15, 1960, Robert and his wife were traveling through Soviet-occupied Lithuania. There, they encountered a few cadets from the Red Army and struck up a conversation. During that chat, one of the cadets beamed with pride and asked Robert, quote, What do you think of our new manned rocket? Robert was taken aback. He'd been following the space race closely, but hadn't heard the news. When he asked for more details, the cadet then said a rocket had gone up that morning with a man inside. Robert congratulated them on their country's victory, but inside he was heartbroken. The U.S. had lost. However, when he expressed his congratulations to their tour guide later that afternoon, the man nervously corrected the cadet's story. He said a rocket had launched, but there was no one inside, only a dummy. The official story was that Sputnik 4 was a test model for a manned spaceflight, so it was designed for a cosmonaut to inhabit. It had a cabin, some operational controls, even a television. And from what the public knew, a dummy was put in the aircraft, just like Heinlein's tour guide said. But something did go wrong during this mission. Sputnik 4 didn't re-enter the atmosphere as planned. Instead, it spent months in space before supposedly crashing back down to Earth in September of 1962. Small pieces of the cabin landed in Wisconsin, but the rest, including the dummy, was never found. Hearing all this, Robert tried to reconcile the Soviet media version of events with what he'd been told by the cadet. After thinking about it, he decided that maybe a cosmonaut had been on the ship, But due to errors in flight, Sputnik 4 was unable to return to Earth, leaving a real astronaut to perish in orbit. It might seem like a big assumption, but remember, the Soviets were secretive about their space program. To them, the only stories worth publicizing were their successes. Missions that were failures were not fit to share with the world. Even so, Heinlein's theory wasn't widely received. What it really needed was physical evidence. 
but that could be found in the story of two Italian brothers, Achille and Jean-Battista Utica Cordelia. According to an article in the Fortean Times, a British magazine on strange phenomena, in the early 1960s, the two brothers had made a hobby of hacking into the Russian space program's radio channel. Supposedly, they'd listened to the original launch of Sputnik and other missions. But in May 1960, the same month Robert Heinlein talked to a red cadet in Lithuania, the brothers overheard something strange. It was a cosmonaut speaking to base, saying its ship had gone off course. Possibly the same ship Robert heard about during his travels. That wasn't the only instance. In November of that same year, the brothers intercepted another recording from what they believed to be a different spacecraft. This time it was a hiss and a crackle. They listened closer and determined it was Morse code. The message? S-O-S. The signal proceeded to grow fainter and fainter as if it was heading away from Earth. And then it was gone. The brothers supposedly hacked into another Russian space mission three months later in early February 1961, just a few months before Yuri Gagarin took off. This time, they heard what sounded like labored breathing. They recorded it and sent it to an Italian cardiologist who backed up their analysis. It was human. Not long after, the Soviets announced that in early February, they had sent a shuttle into space. The Soviets didn't indicate that anyone had been on board, but to the brothers, it sounded like a cosmonaut had been in the chamber and suffocated to death. Of course, Russia never announced anything of the sort to the public. In mid-May, the brothers captured another transmission, only this time it was a woman's voice crying for help. Translated into English, the woman is heard saying, quote, Come in, come in, come in, listen, come in, talk to me. I'm hot, I'm hot, come in, what? 45, what? 50? Yes, 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 breathing, oxygen, oxygen, I'm hot. This, isn't this dangerous? She goes on to say that she can see a flame, then asks if she's going to crash. She finishes by stating, I will re-enter, wording that only made sense in the context of space travel. According to the Fortean Times article, the brothers picked up another signal a few days later. This time, a cosmonaut said, quote, Conditions growing worse. Why don't you answer? Officially, there was no Russian launch in the days surrounding the recordings. However, the brothers were certain that something was covered up. So they alerted the media. The Soviets weren't pleased. And supposedly in February of 1962, a KGB agent showed up at their door pretending to be a journalist. At first, the brothers fell for the ruse and gave him an interview. A little while later, an Italian man they called their guardian angel warned them the journalist was actually KGB and they shouldn't talk to him again. As far as we know, the brothers didn't give any more info to Russian agents. 
Yet, even knowing they might be at risk, they maintained that what they heard was Russia's lost cosmonauts. And it's only in recent decades that we've begun uncovering many of those buried Soviet secrets. For example, Bondarenko's death during the training accident wasn't made public until 1986. For all we know, we've only scratched the surface of these Soviet space program cover-ups. For this reason, I give this theory that Russian cosmonauts were launched into space and never returned a five. You might be right about more Soviet secrets to come, but I have to disagree with you on this theory's validity. First, there's no proof the brothers' hacks were actually real. In fact, some Russians have said the woman's accent sounds fake. Others have suggested it was a recording performed by their sister released as a hoax. The space race was such a popular topic of discussion that the brothers likely wanted to get in on the hype. What's more, they'd been longtime fans of the U.S. space program and probably wanted to do anything they could to discredit Russia. For that reason, I have to give it a three. Ultimately, the story of the lost cosmonauts may be just that, a story, and one that fits the Western view of Russia as a secretive, dangerous nation. After all, the U.S. and Soviet Union were engaged in a very high-stakes space race that reflected the larger tensions of the Cold War. When it seemed as if the Soviets were winning, it was only natural to want to believe there was foul play. Yet for Russia, the space race took a big turn in 1966. That January, Sergei Korolov, who was long considered the founder of the Russian space program, died during colon surgery. Which helped the U.S. play catch-up. On July 20th, 1969, American Neil Armstrong stepped foot on the moon, cementing a U.S. victory. The Soviet Union fell by the end of 1991. Since then, the country has released decades' worth of cover-ups and secrets, but nothing regarding lost cosmonauts. Yet we continue to float this theory, maybe because the idea is so haunting. A cosmonaut, once unfailingly loyal to his government, is stranded in orbit. But no one comes to save him, no one even acknowledges his service. Instead, he flies away from his country, away from Earth, and into the unknowns of space. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. You can find all episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll be back next time with a new episode. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories is a Spotify original from ParCast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Juan Borda, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Katovich. This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by Stacey Nemec, edited by Lori Gottlieb and Mackenzie Moore, with fact-checking by Anya Bailey and research by Bradley Klein. Conspiracy Theories stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy. <laughs> ¶¶